Hey L2 listeners, we're currently studying the book of Colossians in a series we've titled Following Jesus. You can find audio of this series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. Now here's Russ with this week's message. This morning we're starting a new uh, series that I think is probably going to last about 16 weeks. We're going to go through the entire book of Colossians, and we've titled the series Following Jesus, and I, I, I believe I want to start the series by having you consider that I think we all know that there are a lot of reasons that people don't believe Christianity. There, I mean, there's various reasons for different reasons for different people, but I want, what I want you to think about is addressing something that's going on in our culture. Why would someone that believed it stop believing it? See, it's one thing for a person never to believe it, but it's something else for a person to say they believe it and then come to a point that they actually deny that they believe it anymore. What has to happen? Obviously, in our minds, we can think of things that can happen in, in a church between, between you know, the people that are in that community. Things can happen. People get injured and they go away. To completely come to a point that you actually say the way I view the world is not like that anymore is a pretty substantial decision. I believe that what we're going to find is that throughout this book of Colossians, Paul is dealing with a group of people that some of them were doing that. It was in the middle of the first century, and there were some in the church that were doing just great. And then there were others in the church that couldn't hang on anymore. There was something shaking them off the fence. And I think what you're going to see is that there's an amazing parallel between our culture today and what was going on in Colossae in the, in the middle of the first century. Um, let me start by showing you a, a, a new report that just came out by Pew Research Center. It was titled, America's Changing Religious Landscape. And it confirms what Joe Bells, Joe Bells was one of the founding editors of World Magazine. He wrote an article in 2006 that said, Locked from the Inside was the title, and the subtitle was, America Needs to Brace Itself for Church Closings by the Tens of Thousands. He was just about a decade ahead of what we're starting to see. And what the Pew Research Report said was this, it was really interesting information. It said the percentage of adults ages 18 and older who describe themselves as Christians has dropped by nearly eight percentage points in just seven years. From 78.4% in an equally massive Pew Research survey in 2007 to 706 in 2014. Over the same period, the percentage of Americans who are religiously unaffiliated, describing themselves as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, had jumped more than six points from 16.1 to 22.8%. Now, the report does confirm that the United States has the largest population of Christians in it of any country in the world. So it's not as if Christianity is about to drop off in the ocean. 
But there's something, <clears throat> there's something at work in our culture that's causing many people who formerly claimed to be Christians to not affiliate with it any longer. There's something that's happening, something, some force, some ideology, whatever you want to call it, is at work that is causing that to happen. And hopefully throughout this series what we're going to see is, is that I think we can understand this better than most of us do. Just becoming aware of it, but understanding the issues that are at work in some people's thinking, I think, is going to be crucial for, for us to really to realize that <clears throat> and address it properly. But it's interesting that this, the study showed that this group called the nuns is the, they, on the survey, they, they claim that they affiliate to nothing in particular. And so Pew Research has dubbed dubbed that along with Barna and, <clears throat> and Gallup. They've, they've dubbed this group the nuns. It's a group of people that really increasingly have disassociated with one form of religion or another. Fastest growing group in our country. Um, what's interesting is that it, that fact tells you that people are more aware of what they're pushing away from than what they're moving toward. In other words, the, the conclusions that they're making is that what they've held to in the past isn't as important as what's in front of them. And so they're willing to push away from something to be kind of stranded in the middle. And I, I believe that that's really interesting. Put it in this, just the, some of those numbers into perspective, nearly 56 million adults in the United States now consider themselves to be nuns. 56 million. And so, over the next few months, as we kind of go through this letter, we're going to move through it, what they call it, expositionally, so we're just going to go through the whole entire book. But as we go through it, I think many of you might be surprised at how similar the culture in Colossae was to what's going on today. And I think that there are going to be many insights that we can gain from it. I think what Paul had to say and the way he was shoring up their faith, so to speak, and prepare them for what was happening is going to be very, very helpful. This morning in this introductory sermon, what I want to show you is that the movement in Colossae was actually going from a real placid beginning to a storm that was gathering around them. And so this first point, I want to just look briefly at verses 2 to 5, and here's this kind of placid beginning. Here's a, a condition in the church that probably is familiar to many of us where Paul just writes and he says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's really no indication there that there's some looming scandal. There's no indication there that, that there was an upheaval about to take place in, in the church. It just seemed like it was a group of Christians that were just trying to get along. Paul commends them as he begins to think about them, as he prays. He remembers their love for each other. He remembers his, their love for Jesus, their love for what they were doing. And he all seems good. Now, by our best estimate, our estimates, that Paul probably wrote this letter around, around 60 to 62 AD while 
he was under house arrest in Rome. After he appealed to Caesar, he was sent to Rome. Ironically, the prevailing emperor in the Roman Empire was Nero, who was going to de declare Christianity an illegal religion beginning in, in November of AD 64. And so this is about two years before there is a cataclysmic upheaval throughout the Roman Empire in regard to Christianity. So it's kind of an interesting dating, but Paul nonetheless is under house arrest in Rome. It's about the same time that he wrote the letter Philemon and, and Ephesians. And so same time frame. As, he, as he's stuck there in Rome awaiting trial, um, he'll be released and then he actually is taken back and beheaded probably around AD 68. Um, it, there's another interesting aspect of this is that there's no record of Paul planning the church. The Colossian church was probably planted by Epaphras, the, uh, a man that during Paul's ministry in, in Ephesus, they believed that Ephesus wasn't that far away, and Epaphras went there and he was probably converted in Ephesus and then went back home, and he was the one that planted the church. He's mentioned twice in the book where Paul is, is actually interacting. The, the occasion of the book or why Paul wrote it, his concern for what was going on in the, church, the Colossian church was predicated upon a report that Epaphras actually brought him in Rome. And so Epaphras was the one who launched the church. He was the one that went to Rome and he told Paul, you can't believe what's going on. And so Paul, that was the occasion, sat down and he probably dictated this letter through Timothy who wrote it on his behalf. And, and that's a little bit of the landscape. What's, what's kind of interesting in this background as you consider it is that the, the city of Colossae was actually a lot like some of our cities spiritually. It, it, was, it was probably very similar to watching, a, watching a, an episode of Oprah Winfrey on television because it had become a kind of a melting pot of a lot of different spiritual influences. There, was, there were Greek settlers, there was uh, many of the Phrygian uh, settlers had come in, um, Atticus, uh, yeah, Antiochus, he, the third, in the second century BC, he moved about 3,000 Jewish families into the city. And so the city was kind of a boiling in, in a spiritual way. It was become kind of a smorgasbord. And yet the church took off. It was fairly well, uh, doing fairly well, as we see in the beginning, that um, by the time Paul wrote this letter, the culture in the city was beginning to decline. And it's really interesting both the influence in the region as well as the economic influence of the city had begun to take a back seat to what was going on in two nearby cities, Laodicea and Heropolis. In Laodicea, their banking industry and their silk production industry, and they also made ISAV, there was kind of interesting because it just exploded economically in Laodicea. In fact, there was a, an earthquake that took place in the region that leveled all three of these cities, and Rome offered to rebuild the city. Colossae was never rebuilt, and Laodicea refused Rome's help. They arrogantly said, we, hey, we can take care of this on our own. And so that tells you kind of the economic and the social impact of what was happening in the mid-60s in that in that decade. And so you have Colossae really kind of falling off the map. 
and yet these Christians are hanging on. There's a lot going on in the city, and this is kind of the situation in which Paul is writing. Heropolis, on the other, on the other extreme, was known for, they had hot mineral springs that people would go to to heal them. And so this became a bedroom community that wasn't ever rebuilt. It never was reconstructed after the earthquake. And so this is within a couple years of the city being leveled and abandoned. And so very, very interesting historical context in which Paul is writing. Now, what's interesting here is that I believe that there's even an analogy from this macro understanding of what, what happens in the life of many Christians. If you've ever known someone, if you can think of the name of a, of a person that you know to be a Christian at one point who no longer claims she's a Christian now, if you think of her, that situation, did it surprise you? Did her walking away and her decision not to believe anymore, was that declaration a complete surprise? Or did it happen so slowly that by the time she actually told you she wasn't going to church anymore, she wasn't going to read her Bible anymore, she didn't even claim to be a Christian, it came as no surprise at all. You see, what was happening for years leading up to this was something that I think is very similar to the life of a person that ultimately would walk away. There was a part of the church that was just fine, and there was a part of the church that was just barely, barely hanging on. And so it starts from a placid beginning, and then it moves to a gathering storm. And we see this in the letter. As I told you, the, the introduction, when Paul writes it, is fairly innocuous, but there's actually a few shafts of light or hints into the problems that were, they were beginning to build. In verses 4 and 5, it says that, Of this you have heard before in the, wor uh, in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, it, uh, as, it also as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So he's basically telling them that the work of God sometimes, it's always moving, but sometimes it's far more subtle than you realize. He said it's always increasing. And there's a hint there that he's, he's actually going to lay again a foundation of some of the most important aspects of the Christian faith. He's going to kind of bring them back through that foundational understanding because there was a gospel at work amongst them, but some of them could no longer see it. So some of them no longer perceived it. It's later in the letter that he actually addresses the concerns that false teaching had crept into the church and was beginning to cause people to lose their confidence and actually walk away. We see it in chapter 2 and verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This shows us that Paul's concern was primarily with their thinking, not their feeling. He was concerned about what they were thinking, about the most basic or essential components of the Christian life. So when he, when he leaves this introduction, he immediately goes into deep theological issues 
that were intended to kind of straighten out some of the crossed wires about what they were believing, about the creation, what they were believing about the role that Jesus played in the gospel. And so he starts to move through that, and you start to see that from the onset of the letter, he was dealing with fissures. He was dealing with fractures that were beginning to, to show up in the church. And so it's their thinking that he was really driving towards. The, the word that he uses for captive is a really interesting term because it basically referred to the idea of someone being taken into captivity by brainwashing or religious error. In other words, he's making a statement that, that is particularly interesting in our day because you have people like Christopher Hitchens, you have people like Richard Dawkins, that they would say that's what Christianity is. What Christianity does is prey upon the emotionally weak, the people that are having difficulty in their life, and it kind of, it kind of shackles them mentally and causes them to not be able to think clearly. It brings them to a point that they need kind of a crutch to survive. And I don't think there's a little bit of irony in that, that in the middle of the first century, when Paul was writing, he said, that's what's taking you away, not what is bringing you in. And it's a very, I think, interesting construct. And as you begin to kind of just take a step back, I want to ask you a question. What if that is the problem? What if these 56 million people are justified in not believing Christianity? What if the average Christian's understanding of Christianity has become so anemic that those people would be wrong to believe that? I've told you over and over again that oftentimes there's a significant percentage, somewhere around 30% of the people that come to me for counseling are people who don't believe. There are these nuns. They, they say they really don't have any religious orientation. And I always try to make sure that they know that I'm a pastor before they start counseling with me. It's like, well, you do know this is a church, and you do know that I'm a pastor. And they say, oh, yeah. And I said, well, why are you here? Well, you help my sister's friend's friend or something. You know? And what's interesting is, is when I begin to ask them, and I'll always tell them, well, you, you understand that I'm a Christian, and what I'm going to tell you is actually going to become from the Scripture. It's like, oh, yeah, that's okay. And I said, why don't, why don't you do me a favor and tell me what you perceive Christianity to be? Just for grins, why don't you just tell me what it is? In ne not one single time, not one single time, in all the years that I've done this, has someone explained Christianity accurately and compellingly. Now what that tells you is that my response to that initially is, if that's what it was, I wouldn't believe it either. Which is usually pretty shocking to a person who's talking to a Christian pastor. And Almost always, they'll follow it up by asking me a question. Well, what do you mean? And I said, that's not it. That's not Christianity. What you've come to perceive, into, your perception of it is so, it's, you're justified, actually. If that's what it is, you've come to a point that you've justified yourself in not believing it. Several years ago, I had a very successful uh, businessman that came in and talked with me and he told me he said I want to believe 
I said, well, that's a good thing. He, he was referred by a, another person I was counseling at the time. And he said, I really do want to believe. My wife has become a Christian this year, and my son has become a Christian this year, but I just can't bring myself to, to believe. And he said, I want to ask you a favor. Before we get started, he said, I want to ask you to promise me you're not going to do any of these three things. He said, number one, I don't really want you to pray for me. He said, number two, I don't want you to give me a book. And number three, I don't want you to convince me that I already have faith. I said, that's fine. I won't do any of those three. And so as we began to talk, I started the same way. And I said, can you explain to me how you understand Christianity? And he began to articulate it in a fairly shallow way. And by the time he got done, I said, that's, that's what you believe it is. And he said, yes. And I said, I wouldn't believe it if I were you either. And he said, what do you mean? I said, what you're perceiving it to be is not what it is, nor is it compelling. And I said, I would like you to agree to come in with me six times. I said, I'm not going to charge you to come in. And I want you to come in for six times, and I'll explain to you what it is from the beginning to the end. And after six times, if you don't believe it, that's fine. That's really on you. And he said, I won't do that. And I looked at him. I said, then you, will you do me a favor? And he said, yeah, sure. I said, quit telling yourself that you want to believe. Because you've locked yourself into a place of ignorance in which what you perceive it to be, even though I can tell you it isn't it, justifies your non-belief. And for you to come here and tell me that you want to believe, but you don't want to investigate what it is, seems oxymoronic. It seems incongruent. But you see, that's what many of us have done. What if these people that are rejecting Christianity are valid? Because we've become so anemic in our understanding of what our faith is that what we communicate to them is not the gospel. It's not compelling. It isn't intelligent anymore. Now, what I would like to do just quickly as we finish this morning is I want to show you four, four things that can kind of create and sharpen the focus like a pair of binoculars on the landscape in which we're living today. These four things, I think, will help all of us. Number one, everyone has faith. You need to have this understanding filed away in your thinking. There's no such thing as a non-believer. It's impossible. Now, there are people who don't believe Christianity. That's very, very true. Just like there's people who don't believe Buddhism or Hinduism or any other faith. But that doesn't mean that they're non-believers. You see, each of us has a system by which we make sense of the world. And we have to think about things that we can't prove. When you go to a funeral, you can't prove what you think about the woman that's in the casket. But you're thinking something. When you think about the creation of the world, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe either. You can't prove that. You weren't there. So you've, your worldview is functioning with faith assumptions in it. Things that can't be tested, but nonetheless you put your confidence in them. And it's important for each of us to go to a point that we're able to say, okay, there really isn't such a thing as a non-believer. The question is, what do you believe and why? Now that helps you be able to talk with anyone. Because if you get in a position where you engage 
a person who's agnostic or a person's an atheist and they just say, well, I don't believe. I usually say, well, you are believing something. You just don't believe what I believe, but the, and that's okay. You have every right to determine that, but you're believing something. And getting that woven into your approach in this is, is absolutely essential. Because if, if you allow a conversation to tip based on you believing and them not believing, you'll never be able to make any headway. The second thing I think you need to really forge into your thinking is comprehending the relationship between faith and reality. The default setting in the United States, hands down, about the exact same percentage of people, 71% of people who claim some affiliation with Christianity today, 71% of the people in the United States across the board, Christians as well as non-Christians, believe that reality... <clears throat> it, so if you took a circle and you said, everything that I believe to be true fits in that circle. Some of you might have a real big circle because you know a lot of things. Some of you might have a real small circle. But I've never met someone that truly believes they know everything that can be known. There's parts of the way that our hearts and our bodies work that only some of you experts in this room understand. And so those things would be outside that circle, but nonetheless, what you perceive reality to be is that confine of all of those things in that sphere that you would call, call reality. Well, 71 out of 100 people in the United States believe that religion is something else. And on the survey, they answered one of two things. They're in contradiction, religion and in reality, are in contradiction to one another, or there's no meaningful relationship between the two. Now, as long as that default is working in your thinking or the thinking of the person that you're talking to, you're not going to make headway. You can't, because their deduction is naturally that if I put faith in something, it's not reality. Now, I, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons that people do that, because there's a lot of Christians that are really weird, their, their, their thoughts are really mystical and almost nonsensical. And so the conclusion of our culture is that the more you grow in your understanding of faith, the less real you become. The more you're teetering towards a mysticism that is making you less real, it's going to put you in less contact with reality. Now, that is a significant thing. You have to be able to say that seven out of ten times, that's what I'm going to bump into. Someone that when I talk about faith, when I talk about religion, they're thinking it's not reality. So that brings me to the third point. The third point is this. You have to understand worldview development because it's happening in you and everyone around you. Whether you have children, whether you have coworkers or people that you go to school with, our worldviews are always developing. It's a mental map that you use to make sense out of the world. So as the empirical data that is received through your senses goes through your brainstem, it gets sorted out by this algorithm that we call our worldview. We make sense out of things that way. And for those of you that have never, ever thought about it, you don't have to. It's like the lens of your eye. You can't experience anything in the world without it passing through your worldview. So what is it made of? What is your worldview made of? Now, Focus on the Family just recently released a report that said less than 4% of all Americans have a biblical worldview. It's somewhere around, 
eight to nine percent of professing Christians. And so if you pulled a Christian aside, if you pulled a hundred of them aside, nine would answer a question about marriage, about parenting, about how to run a business, how they should maintain their money, how they should deal with a temper, a problem with an anger, problem within them. Only nine out of a hundred would explain it according to Scripture. That means that the other 91 professing Christians, the other 96 Americans, explain it some other way. Now, if that's the case, how much is our culture really seeing of authentic Christianity? How much is our culture actually able to experience truth that's coming from the Word of God as opposed to our own ideas? Hand-me-down stuff that's just being passed along generation after generation. You see, this is a really interesting landscape when you begin to put these things together. When you begin to actually hold constructs about all that's going on. So everyone has a faith. There's a relationship between faith and reality that we're all holding to. And worldview development is really, really important. Now, you, you take that statistic that I just gave you and what the scriptures actually say is that reality is Christianity. What the Bible is saying is that what you believe to be true, your faith is informing that reality. Completely opposite than 71% of the people perceive. So as we grow in our understanding of Scripture, as we grow in our understanding of ourselves and the world and the meaning of life, we're actually becoming more real. And that is an important thing. Because the reason that any woman would go to school, the reason that any man would take a job, is because there's a sense of purpose and significance in it. And that's what Christianity promises us. Now, the fourth thing that I would have you consider as we kind of pull this together is each of us need to learn how to face our own doubt. Each of us must. Ultimately, no matter what you have faith in, the very nature of faith is going to cause you to have doubts from time to time. Faith, by definition, is a confidence in the unseen. It's you actually perceiving something while it's not yet uh, experiential. You, haven't, you can't turn it into tangible, objective experience. So, by definition, it's faith. And so the very nature of that definition should cause you to say that, okay, from time to time, I'm going to have doubts. From time to time, I'm going to go through seasons in which I'm not sure exactly what I think. Now, for some reason or another, cultures throughout the United States, church cultures in particular, they, they made us feel bad for admitting our doubts. And I've told you before, over and over, I, used, I had so many of them, and I, and I didn't mind it, admitting them when I was growing up. I remember sitting down with a very prominent friend of mine who was a pastor of a very, very large church at the time and then became the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I told him, I said, I don't know what I believe. And he told me, he said, you just need more faith. I said, I just told you, I don't know what I believe. How can I have faith in a faith that I don't have faith in? And he said, well, you just need to have more hope. And I said, oh, that's even more frustrating. How do I have hope in hope that isn't hoping? Or faith in a faith that isn't working? 
See, there has to be a way that you can admit it. There has to be a way that you're committed to work through your doubts. I don't care what you believe. You have to have some process by which you are able to A, admit, and B, work through your doubts. Because if you don't, you'll never have confidence in what you believe, ever, ever. Now, some of the finest writing that has been made available to us in recent years in regard to our doubts is by Tim Keller. If you haven't read uh, The Reason for God, you need to get a copy of it, even if you're not a Christian, just so you know where a lot of the intelligence from Christians is coming from, is coming from Timothy Keller. Now, in his introduction to The Reason for God, he wrote this. He said, the only way to doubt... Now, before I read this, I want you to... Before those of you that are Christians read this and automatically think, well, this is what you should say to a non-Christian. Don't shirk this. Because this pertains to you when you doubt Christianity too. Whenever you come to a point where you've got some hesitation in embracing some part of Christianity, there's another belief system at work in you. And you have to figure it out. Now this is what he said. The only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then to ask yourself what reason you have for believing it. How do you know your belief is true? Now, what he is saying there is before you can push away from Christianity, you should be able to say, well, what is it that I do believe? What is it, what is it that's at work? Now, for those of us that are Christians, when we come to a point where we're doubting one of the assertions of Christianity, it's because we're holding on to something else. We're not non-believing. There's something at work there. Now, he goes on and says this. He said, it would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts. My thesis is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appear. That's profound. He's basically saying, just take a step back and consider what it is that you are believing. And I can tell you as a Christian, I said this about a month and a half ago, and it was remarkable, it was almost astounding to me the amount of feedback I got. I have never been more equipped and more diligent in disproving Christianity than I am today. I have tried to disprove it over and over and over again. I've never had. I've been studying in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew since 1989. I tutored in those languages. I've got three degrees in theology. And I can't disprove it. Now that doesn't mean that there's not aspects of it that I have to accept by faith. I believe that God created our world. I believe that your life isn't just the bumper sticker shit happens. I don't believe that. I believe it was ordered by God. And he knows the number of the hairs on your head. I believe that he wrote the number of your days in the book before there was one. Those were all fantastical. But when I look at the weight of what I see in Scripture, it's compelling to me. 
and it makes all the other belief systems not as viable to me. And so you see, in spite of all my training, in spite of all my diligence, in spite of all of these years, I can't disprove it. And oftentimes when I have people that come in and they've held to other faiths or they're, they're just claiming non-belief and they're pushing away of Christianity, I ask them two questions and I can tell, I can actually think, man, I wish it was that easy for me. I wish I could have just said, I'm done, and not think about it anymore because I can't. I can't. There's something at work in me when I hold my grandchildren. There's something that has to happen when I do your funerals and I do your weddings. I have to believe something. But some people seem to be willing just to say, I don't, I don't believe anything. That's not true. You do believe something. How credible is it? You see, when we ask those questions, I think our faith starts having more substance. And accordingly, we start having more confidence. What if Christianity from the very beginning was intended to push you off any kind of fence? What from the very onset, from the words that start, were written in the Old Testament to the dusty roads that Jesus walked on and the words that came out of his mouth, what if Christianity was intended to shake you off a fence that you never could get back on again? And so now it's doing it in the 21st century and we feel scared. But maybe that's what it should have been doing all along. And all of what we consider to be decisional, nominal Christianity that isn't deep, deeply woven into the fabric of our convictions and thinking was always false anyway. Now listen to another quote. With this I'll finish with Tim Keller. This is a recent article that he just wrote called, it's titled, The City, the Church, and the Future. He says, in short... In the Western world, including North America, our societies are becoming both more secular and more religious at the same time. And this is, as Davy said, a challenging combination. The reality is neither that belief in God is inevitably disappearing, that's one camp, nor that in some simplistic way God is back, that's the other camp. Davy says that the religious landscape is now paradoxical. What is going away is inherited, institutionalized Christianity, what many would call nominal Christianity. Yet new patterns of Orthodox Christian faith and of other religions are growing too. Contrary to the confident prediction of its death, religious faith is an increasing presence in the modern world order. What does that tell you? That should tell you that if you've never been serious, Now's the time. If you've never really figured out what you believed and you've gone to church because your, your grandmother and your mother or your grandfather and your father took you, you better figure it out because you're not going to be able to sit on the fence. You're not going to be able to stay there long. I think it's quite a healthy thing that our society will not tolerate a person who says he believes something and doesn't live that way. It's not going to work for you any longer. It's going to find you out. Because it's more than just coming to church on Sunday. This is going to be a good study. I hope you'll stick it out. It'll be worth your time, I promise. Let me take a few questions and I'll be done. 
How do we respond to an agnostic person who says our only compelling argument for Christianity is faith in something we cannot prove? Well, I just said, that's the only thing they have. An agnostic person who claims that there's a God, but he can't be known. You see, an atheist is off-theist. There is no God. An agnostic, and I tend to believe along with Penn Gillette, if you're agnostic, you're essentially a practical atheist because you don't believe that God can be connected in our thinking. And so you're a practical atheist. So when a person says, well, the only thing that you have is faith in something you cannot prove, he's saying that ironically, from the same place. And so you're still on even ground. You're still very much on even ground. Now, I used to teach in the apologetic class in our seminary. <clears throat> if you went into a bar in Denver, any bar, and you said, okay, do you believe in the formation of the, the creation in, in atheistic evolution? It was just unguided cause and effect. Or do you believe that there was some design behind it? You'll split the bar in half. Now, that won't happen in Sterling, but it will happen in Denver. And 50% of the people will say, I think it was just a cacophony. I think it was just random. And the other people would say, no, I think that there was something at work in it. Now you've got a foothold with 50% of the people. Now, the remaining 50% of the people, if you said, well, is, it, is truth objective? and external to us, or is it internal and subjective? It splits the other 50% in half. Because all your isms, all your, all your Eastern thought is that truth is internal and subjective. But see, that gets you to a problem that there's no transcendent meaning. Love can mean anything that you think it can mean, which means it means nothing. It's that last 25% that you're going to have the most problem with. Because they believe that truth is external and objective, whether it's Mormonism, whether it's uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, what you're going to have is a group of people that are going to appeal to some external evidence. And you're going to have to know your stuff with that 25%. But the other 75%, you've got plenty of place to work. It's not as difficult as you think. Next question. Let me run out of time. Is a person's unbelief always due to a lack of clear understanding of what Christianity is? Paul wrote very interestingly in Romans 10. He said, how can they believe if they've never heard? Now, I, I happen to have a, a really good friend, that, a dear friend that I've had for many years, that has suddenly slid into this category that believes that he believes that people can actually get saved without ever hearing the gospel. That's heretical. That's, that, that's a word for bad. It's really bad. The apostle just said, there's no other name under heaven in which we must be saved. Jesus said, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Unless you know Jesus, you're not going to know God. It's that simple. And people struggle with that. I know, I know. It's one of the leading defeater beliefs in our culture. But I wouldn't go into the next one. Okay, um, when you... There's a lack of clear understanding of what Christianity is. A person cannot profess something they don't understand. You cannot lead the people that you love to believe in something that you don't believe or don't understand. If you believe that, it's sheer mysticism. 
Sheer mysticism. Listen, you could put your butt in one of these chairs 52 times a year for 10 years and still not be a Christian. I did it for a long time myself. This is serious. I was a Klingon. I hung on to things that I didn't understand. I tried to tell people and unpack things, ideas, and I, I emulated other people because it, it wasn't a part of me. Don't be like that. Our culture is not going to tolerate you. Either get in or have the courage to get out because you just can't sit on the fence. Jesus never intended to, to give you that option. Now, for those of you that are looking, I'm not trying to push you away. Those of you that are investigating Christianity, that's a different thing than a person who claims to be a Christian but doesn't know what he believes and doesn't know why. So have the courage to either get in or to go away. It's going to happen to you sooner or later. All right. That's all I got. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the ask Zach and Jason to come back up and finish our worship together. We're going to take communion. Um, for those of you that are Christians, take a few moments and revisit the core of your faith. What do you believe and why? Are you so sure you could hold on to it if today was an outbreak of persecution? Or would you conveniently deny it? Father, I would ask that there would be a, just a moment of clarity that you would grant to each of us that somehow would pierce its way through all of the nonsense that we allow to occupy our minds, whether it's perpetual observation of Twitter feeds or... Pinterest, or whatever it is. Push all that out just for a moment that we might be able to take ourselves seriously enough to consider what it is that we believe. Father, there is a storm gathering in this country. You allowed Joe Bells to see it from a telescope 10 years ago, and it's starting to unfold. And I I find it somewhat difficult to believe that there's a single Christian in this room that is, or that is watching online that can't think of several people that used to be Christians that aren't any longer. Father, will, will it be me next? Or is there something that you've given us that would push us in or push us away? I think it is going to be found in this letter that Paul wrote to a group of people. Some were doing well and some not so well. But give us the courage and the wisdom to deal with it faithfully in an inner sanctum where only you and I belong. You and that individual talk. Help us in these things, we pray. We ask him in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 